So we're going to continue with our series in Jonah. So would you open your Bibles to the book of Jonah, chapter 1, and we'll read from verse 10 to verse 16. We've been reading chapter 1 for the past uh, three Sundays, uh, so we're not going to be rereading the verses again. If you haven't read the book, if you haven't read the chapter, so please, I encourage you to do that. Today we're going to look at verse 10 to verse 16. So Jonah chapter 1, verses 10 to 16. And I'll give my wife the opportunity to get to the translation. <laughs> she seems to uh, forget every single time. So please stand for the reading of God's Word. Jonah 1, 10 to 16. And then the men became extremely afraid. And they said to him, how could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And so they said to him, what should we do to you so that the sea will become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you because I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not because the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they cried out to the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. And do not put innocent blood on us, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. And then the men became extremely afraid of the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Heavenly Father, we thank you this afternoon for just allowing us to come and bless your name in song, open our hearts to you in prayer, confess our sins, and hear from you as we read this word. We pray that you would allow us to glean the truths that we need so that we can face indeed tomorrow. To face it with truth is our privilege. It's our honor to know that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have opened our eyes to see the beloved Lord who died for us guilty sinners so that we could become children of the Most High God. What a privilege, what an honor. I pray that you would open our ears to hear that which you have in store for us today. You know every heart, you know every person that is here, you know where we are at individually, Lord, would you speak to every single one as only you can. This I pray in the precious and glorious name of our Lord. Amen. Please be seated, beloved. Last week we left off acknowledging the fact that God moves in mysterious ways to accomplish his will. And though we may not like or readily accept God's ways, we must keep in mind as we go through the trials of life and the storms of life that God cannot make any mistakes. He 
is the only one that is perfect. And this truth brings great comfort when we face hardships. So that as we are going through hardships and trials, we can trust him. Uh, when Judah complained about God's ways, after being told by the prophets that they would go into captivity in a faraway land for 70 years. Imagine being removed from your home, leaving everything behind. Imagine the people of Ukraine having to leave their country behind and the anguish of soul that comes with that. Well, that's how the people of Judah felt. They had built their homes, built this land. It was prosperous, and God says, you can't stay. You have to be removed, brought into captivity. But then after 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. But they complained. They complained. They didn't want any of it. And God answers through the prophet with these words in Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And that is the truth. God's ways and God's thoughts are higher than ours, and therefore we cannot get the full picture. The people of Judah would have preferred to have stayed in their own homeland, in the country, the kingdom of Judah, and not experience captivity for 70 years in Babylon. But God's will was for them to go, and there he would keep an eye on them. They would flourish in Babylon, while those who were left behind would also be protected by God. God would continue to have his eye on both those who left and those who stayed behind in captivity. Neither one would prosper without the other. And in fact, both were part of the same plan. So when prosperity came for one, it would also come for the other. And this is the scenario we witness among God's people. They were heartbroken. They were crying they didn't want this to happen. The Babylonians were coming in, pulling them away from their homes, and eventually destroying the temple and destroying the land. But in time, it was all clear. And in Jonah, we get the same scenario. Jonah and the, the sailors had no clue uh, that God was at work. Jonah knew that God was angry with him, that God was expressing his displeasure, but the sailors had no clue. And so today we're going to be looking at the verses we just read to see how God providentially and sovereignly saves unworthy sinners, regardless of Jonah's behavior. So let's look at the verse 10. We see here the result of Jonah's disobedience. For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Three times this expression, fleeing from the presence of the Lord appears in chapter 1. Jonah's disobedience is brought to the forefront. Everyone now knows. Everyone is uh, in the know with regards to what he had done. It was obvious that the fierce storm that the sailors had been dealing with was because of Jonah. He had disobeyed God. Jonah's behavior is reminiscent of another character in Scripture, that also fled from the presence of the Lord. Who fled from the presence of the Lord after enjoying God's presence? Adam. After eating the forbidden fruit, we read in Genesis 3 about the first couple's reaction immediately following their disobedience. 
verse 8. Now they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Both Jonah and Adam enjoyed God's presence. But after disobedience comes into the picture, they hide, they run, they flee. Just as Jonah sought to distance himself from the Lord and from the people of God and from his ministry, so Adam sought to distance himself from the Lord. They both ran away from the Lord. Adam tried to hide very much like Jonah. This is the pattern that every single human being has. It remains unchanged. This is our MO. No one has ever run towards God. No one. Throughout history, no one has ever sought God. No one ever tries to know God. Unless God draws us to himself, we will never run to him. This is the pattern that remains unchanged. And this pattern created catastrophe with Adam and with his offspring and brought the catastrophe that Paul describes in his letter to the Romans in chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all mankind because all sinned. So here Paul describes the storm of storms, death, the greatest storm of all. It has been raging throughout our history and it spares no one. From Adam to all of us, we face the storm of death. After he was created, Adam was the federal head. He was the one responsible for mankind. And therefore, when he sinned, we sinned in Adam. His disobedience became our disobedience. The evil that has plagued humanity ever since that moment called the fall is a result of Adam's sin into which we were born. So we are born into sin, and as I said earlier, we run away from God. That is in our natural state. This doctrine is what is commonly called the original sin. Many people complain about it. I myself was one of them. I couldn't stand the fact that I was responsible for Adam's fall, for Adam's sin. I said, Adam should have been responsible, not me. Why should I be equally responsible? Why do I have to pay the consequences of his mistake? And what I didn't understand was that I sinned in Adam because I was in him. And so all of his posterity, all of his offspring sinned in Adam. The covenant was between God and Adam. And he broke that covenant. And he paid, we all paid, until, of course, Christ came. So when he fell, we fell with him. When we sinned, we sinned with him. And therefore, we sin and, because we are sinners. We don't, we're not sinners because we sin. But because we are sinners, through Adam, we sin. And as a result, we've all been judged. As uh, Romans 5.18 continues, So then, as through one offense, the result was what? Condemnation to all mankind. Everyone comes under judgment because of Adam's sin. Everyone is under the wrath of God. Everyone. 
So just as Jonah's disobedience brought calamity and a catastrophe upon all the sailors, so Adam brought upon all mankind the curse which includes death, disease, rebellion, and corruption of soul. It's an ongoing storm that rages in this world. Now, that's the result of Jonah's disobedience, which we can liken to Adam's. Now let's look at the revelation of deliverance found in verses 11 and 12. And so they said to him, to Jonah, these are the sailors, the storm, remember, is raging and they're unable to control and man the ship. What should we do to you so that the sea will become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, pick me up, Hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you because I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. In these words uttered by the sailors, we have reflected the question that burns in every soul, in every one of us since the fall. How can we reverse what Adam did? How do we stop the storm? How do we stop disease? How do we stop the wars? How do we stop poverty? How do we stop all this? How do we reverse it? That's the question. Psychologists offer their answers. Sociologists, theirs. Philosophers, theirs. Scientists, theirs. And religious people offer theirs. But all the answers put forth by men are weak attempt, a weak effort in calming the storm. As sailors, we want to know what the answer is. How do we stop it? How do we stop the storm within us? How do we stop the storm in the world? And it's Jonah that finally speaks up. And he gives the right answer. Throw me overboard. That's the answer. Throw me overboard. Throw me into the waters. Let me die. That's the answer. Let me die. Someone has to pay with his life to undo the effects of the fall. In short, what is needed is a person that can bring a lasting solution. We need a definitive answer to the curse that has come upon all of us. John the Baptist, when he was in the Jordan River, as he was baptizing people, sees Jesus walking on the shore and points to him and with these words gives us the solution. He says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He takes it away. He undoes the uh, effects of the curse. He didn't call him the Messiah and Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one. He didn't call him, behold, the king. Jesus was king. But John calls him the lamb. And every Jew understood what that meant. It meant that Jesus was going to die. He had to be thrown into death. He had to die. Jesus was the one who came to die and through his death undo the effects of the curse brought about by the fall. The innocent the pure, the sinless, the holy dies for the wicked, for the rebellious, for sinners. That's the gospel. 
And in John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33, Jesus alludes to this when he says, if I am lifted up from the earth, so in which way is he lifted up? Not on a spaceship, listen carefully. I will draw all people to myself. All of us want to go to Mars or interplanetary travel, as Elon Musk calls it. But this is the travel, the, uh, rather, this is the only liftoff that counts, the liftoff of Christ. And he was saying this to indicate what kind of death he was going to die. If I die, I will draw them from perdition. I will draw them from condemnation. I will draw them from judgment. The wrath of God will no longer be upon them. I must die. Death is the answer. Not the death of anyone. Not the death of an angel. Not the death of a holy man. But the death of one and only. The death of Christ. He had to die. And he had to be judged in our stead. He had to be lifted up on that cross. And be abandoned by both God and men and angels. Jonah is saying to the sailors, For you to live, I must die. Of course, this is a different Jonah now. Prior to this, we see Jonah trying to hide. He's running away. But now Jonah is owning up to his mistakes, to his sin and his rebellion. This is not a self-seeking Jonah. But it's one who admits that he must pay the price. So in a sense here, Jonah is a type of Jesus. Because every story in the Old Testament always points to Jesus. Christ in Scripture is called also the second Adam. The first Adam ran away. The second Adam never ran away. Jonah ran and then becomes a picture of Christ. And so here we see in 2 Corinthians, uh, sorry, in in, uh, Romans, um, the, the comparison that Paul draws between the first Adam and the second Adam. And notice how he compares them. So then as through one, which means the first Adam, offense, the result was condemnation to all mankind. We're all under condemnation because of Adam, the first Adam. So also through the one act of righteousness, that's the second Adam, the result was justification of life to all mankind. So justification is now available not only to Jews, but everyone who's outside of the Jewish nation to the family of God who are sinners. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one, the many will be made righteous. So there's there's the comparison between the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam sought what is good for himself. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, sought what was good for us sinners. This is the revelation that saves us from death. If I believe this, I am saved. If I sing about it, that means it's truly mine. If I talk about it, that means it's really in my heart. If I just keep it in once in a while and casually think about it, it hasn't gripped me. I haven't been changed. I haven't been transformed. I haven't been regenerated. Regeneration comes when I believe this truth, when I accept the fact that for me to live, Jesus had to die. For me to be forgiven, he had to be made a curse. He had to take my debt so that I could take on his righteousness. And as Peter told his listeners, the same applies today. In Acts 4.12, there is 
salvation in no one else. In other words, please don't think that something else or someone else or something out there or something that you and I can come up with can save us. I read a lot of articles on um, saving the planet. Of course, we are constantly um, given a barrage of this stuff that the climate crisis is here, the, the planet is burning, it's on fire, and something has to be done. In fact, we're already too late, and so forth. And this stuff keeps coming at us at rapid pace, right? Like in rapid fire. And when I read about this, the question I ask myself is this if I were to save this planet, if somehow, right, if because they say each one of us can do our part. If somehow all of us doing our part in this world and all the politicians were to do their part and every single individual in this world were to do his part and we were to successfully save the planet, we would be no better off. What good is it if we save the planet and lose ourselves eternally? What good is it? It's either we accept his death as the ultimate and true salvation. That doesn't mean we can't do our part in preserving water and saving trees and all that. I'm not saying that. But that is way secondary. The first and ultimate salvation is found in Christ Jesus. Now let's look at the refusal to embrace the message. Verses 13 and 14. However, when they heard this from Jonah, what did the men do? They didn't say, oh, wow, that's it? Oh, okay, we embrace it. We accept it. If this is what God wants, we'll take you and throw you overboard. No, they didn't do that. The men rode desperately to return to land. But they could not because the sea was becoming even stormier against them. And then, in desperation, they cried out to the Lord and said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, do not put innocent blood on us, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. So upon hearing the words of Jonah, the men went right back to rowing, right back to taking their oars and doing their best to, to man that ship and bring it to land. They basically refused the offer of salvation. That's what it was. Now, you cannot blame them. They had every reason to object and every reason to say no. I mean, after all, they're taking a man and throwing him overboard. And if you look at the story of Jesus, many people tried to save Jesus. Pilate tried, all right? And others from the Sanhedrin who were not as evil as the rest, whether it be Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus, they tried. There were people who tried to save Jesus. But it was impossible to save him because God had predetermined that he should die. But here the issue is, will the men accept God's offer? Will the men surrender? I've heard people say, I cannot believe in a God who gives up his son to save others. Why does God have to do that? Why does God have to give up his son to save people? And so they reject the message of the cross. It's not because I can understand it that I embrace it. No one understands this. How is it, how is it possible for anyone to embrace this message with his mind? We can't accept it in the natural. 
but we refuse it, just like they refused it. We try. We go back to our attempts. We go back to our efforts. We go back to doing everything we can. You know, we want to save ourselves. What do we do? We turn to every possible measure that there is out there. I read about one person who, um, trying to get himself in better shape, went through this extreme diet, took out meat, took out uh, all kinds of fruit, took out sugar, and just gave himself to uh, vegetables. And then he got better, and then shortly after he died. What am I saying with this? That there is nothing you can do to save yourself ultimate salvation. You can give yourself maybe a year. You can give yourself maybe a few months. You can give yourself maybe a little bit better of a life. But that's all you can do. At the end, we're going to stand before our judge. Unless we embrace his plan. God has determined that only through the death of someone can I be saved. Just like God has determined that those sailors be saved only through Jonah's death. And God could have used any other means to calm the waters, he could have just stopped, but he wasn't stopping. The, the, the waves were becoming higher, the wind was becoming more fierce, and the situation was becoming hopeless. And what you see in the sailors' reaction to Jonah's words really is pride. Pride is saying to God, I can do this. I, I don't need your son to die on the cross for me. I don't need the message of the cross. It's the same pride that has been there all along, right from the day the message of the cross was given. But for those who believe in the message of the cross, they are saved. The glorious plan of redemption was not an afterthought. It did not come about after Adam sinned. It was decreed way before the creation of the world. The triune God decreed that those who would be saved would be saved through the death of Christ. And that was the only way of being saved. There is no other name under heaven, as we read earlier, by which we can be saved. Look what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things. Because in the Jewish religion, you redeemed someone by paying, either with silver or with gold, so he goes, you were redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with a precious blood, that simply means death, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Verse 20, for he was what? Foreknown before the foundation of the world but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Think about those words. He was predetermined to be the lamb before the foundation of the world. And so God chooses those that he will save by giving up his son as a sacrifice. Now that may disturb you and that may repel some of you and that may say, look, I don't agree with this. I'm going to save myself. I'll find a way out of my situation. But if you do not humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and do not embrace this, nothing happens but the waters get stormier. The waters get stormier. The life becomes harder. It becomes more difficult. It becomes more hopeless. 
Our natural reaction, like the sailors, is to reject this plan. It's impossible for the human mind to embrace it. It's foolishness, as Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, that Jesus, the beautiful, glorious, majestic Son of God, would become a man. More than that, a bond slave and endure the most horrific death, the death of the cross. For Greeks, it's foolishness, as Paul also says. Um, most of you have heard of Zeus. In mythology, he is the father of all gods. And Zeus has many sons. And of course, one of them that we know quite well is Hercules. And Hercules appears on the scene. Why? To help the oppressed. To help those who cannot help themselves. That makes sense. He uses his mighty strength right, to solve situations, to help people, to deliver the oppressed. That makes sense. But that God would send his son in weakness, that God would send his son and to suffer, to endure reproach and rejection, and ultimately to be put on a cross, doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Greek mythology is basically um, an expression of what we want to see as a savior. We want to see someone who's mighty, someone who's powerful. That's why superheroes are always admired, even though we know they don't exist. We want a superhero. We want someone to come and save us. But God says, I am saving you through death of my son. And we say no. We're like the sailors who reject that. And we go back to our own attempts, to our own ideas. Look at what Jesus had to do with his own disciples over and over. He forewarned them that he would die. That he would be given up by the chief priests, the leaders of the people, and he would die. When he finally dies, they're all, they're all breaking apart and they're all asking themselves, what happened? What happened? He had told them this over and over. We don't accept it. We can't accept it. But God's answer remains the same towards all those who reject his plan, who push aside the message of the cross, who do not thank him for his death on the cross. What's the answer? Verse 13, the sea was becoming even stormier. See, when the storms increase in our lives, it's God's way of drawing our attention to himself so that we humble ourselves before him and embrace the cross. Wherever Paul went, he made sure that the message of the cross was at the forefront. Why? Because the cross can so easily be eclipsed. It can be pushed aside. Its message is in constant danger of rejection. The church itself has often forgotten and put aside the cross. And it has delved into other areas, other arenas, thinking that those arenas demand their attention. But it's the cross, the cross, the cross, the cross. That's why Paul says, God forbid that I should boast, save in the cross. It was his boast, it was his message. He, on that hill, Paul wanted to be found. I remember reading about Spurgeon, and uh, um, he was a, a pipe smoker at the time, famous preacher in um, in Victorian days in London, and uh, I may have said this before, and uh, his son, who was a doctor, would tell him, Dad, you've got to stop smoking. It's not good for you. 
but it helps me. I feel better after I smoke because he had a whole bunch of ailments and, and tobacco helped him overcome these. And, and he said, Dad, it's not good for you. Anyways, one day he's walking down the street and he's walking to his favorite tobacco store and there on the display it says, Smoke uh, Spurgeon's Brand. And uh, Spurgeon says, They will remember me for the tobacco I smoke and not for the cross that I preach. He went inside, he goes, please remove that. From here on in, I, will, I do not smoke. And he endured with his pain rather than eclipsing the message of the cross. When people look at us, that's what they must remember. That's what they must see. He preaches the cross. She preaches the cross. She lives for the cross. This is not just by hanging a cross around our necks or on our mirror in the car or on our walls in our home. That means nothing. It's not an icon. It's the message, the truth behind it, that Jesus, the Son of God, died for an unworthy sinner. And so when people call me and say something mean about me, I'll say to them, I'm worse than that, much worse than that. And God loved me and sent his Son to die on the cross for me. And that's the message of the cross. The cross is not an attractive message. It points to the fact that we cannot save ourselves, and we hate that, because it strikes our ego, and it points to our inward rebellion. But that's all we have. It's the cross. As I said earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 22 to 25. I quoted this, and now I'm going to read what Paul said. For indeed, Jews ask for signs. Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block. To the Gentiles, Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than mankind. The weakness of God is stronger than mankind. You see, the Jews look at that and say, it doesn't make any sense that Christ, our Messiah, be the one who is crucified like a guilty, vile criminal. And Paul says, it's wisdom of God. It's the power of God. And to the Greeks, the same thing. It doesn't make any sense. We want someone that's strong. It's powerful. It's the wisdom of God. It's the power of God. It's much greater than yours. The cross is what pleased God then, and it continues to please God today. And we must make sure that it's our ultimate joy and our boast always. So we've seen the result of Jonah's disobedience. We've seen the revelation of deliverance. We've seen the refusal of the message given to them. Now let's look at the repentance of the heathen. Verses 15 and 16, so they picked up Jonah. Now, with their backs against the wall, they had no choice. They picked him up, hurled him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men became extremely afraid of the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. Now here we see the sailors surrendering to the plan, to God's truth. And it's a good thing when we come to the end of ourselves. The end of ourselves can come in many ways, through a disease, an illness, financial setback. I've seen people with their backs against the wall financially, and they cry out to God for help, and God gives them something far better. He gives them the gift of salvation. And not just a way out from that financial difficulty. Others were sick, seriously sick, 
close to dying, and God gave them the gift of salvation. Some people say, if God heals me, I'll believe him. If God gets me out of this mess, I'll believe him. Well, if God could get you out of that mess, and if God does heal you and doesn't give you the greatest gift of all, you have been shortchanged. The greatest gift is the gift of salvation. What good is it if you, as I said earlier, you gain the whole world, you gain all of health, all of the money, all of the fame, all of its glory, and you lose your soul. There's nothing good in it. It's good when we look up and cry these words, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. We surrender. It's not my way, it's your way. It's your way, Lord. And what pleases God is that we acknowledge our sinfulness and believe that the death of Christ saves us from our sins and the wrath to come. That's what pleases God. Why did all of this happen to these sailors? You ever ask yourself that question? God could have revealed his displeasure toward his servant. He did it many times before. When uh, Moses struck the rock, he didn't say, you and everybody here are not going into the promised land. He said, you are not going in. Right? Why does God involve all these sailors of this ship in this odyssey? The storm, the whole thing, the search, they're praying out, they're crying out, they're trying their best. Finally determined through lottery that it's Jonah. Of course, God was guiding that uh, casting of lots. And all of this, why did God involve these sailors this way? Why? Why bring them through this irrational, because it looks, sounds irrational process? The reason is twofold. <clears throat> God wanted to save these sailors. He wanted them to know who he was. He was revealing himself to these pagans who had been worshiping false god and had no knowledge of who the god of heaven and earth was. So through the disobedience of his servant, God reveals himself. Even through a disobedient servant, he reveals himself to these men. It was his divine choice. There is no other way of explaining it. Paul reminds us in his letter to the Romans in chapter 10, verse 14, how then are they to call on him in whom they've not believed? How can anyone out there call on God in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? How are they to hear without a preacher. But how are they to preach unless they are sent? So who was there when Jonah was running away and buys a ticket to, for a ship that's heading to Tarshish? Who was doing everything behind the scenes? It was God. God wanted these men to hear about him. God wanted these sailors to know who he was. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Here's Jonah, disobedient servant, and he's still bringing good news. Here's Jonah doing his thing, and he's still being used by God. <laughs> How wonderful is our God. Jonah was used to preach to these pagans, these heathens, these men who had no knowledge of God, 
were doing their own thing and turned them in repentance to God. And so they turned their backs to their idols that they had been worshiping up to that time. The moment these sailors embraced God's plan, they were saved. See, people ask at times, how were those in the Old Testament saved? How were people saved under the Old Covenant? The same way they're saved under the New. They're saved by grace through faith. There is no other way of salvation. It's not that God had two plans. Now, his revelation is progressive, but it's one way of salvation. By grace, through faith. And what you see here are people humbling themselves and turning to God in faith. It's the glorious plan of salvation. It's the plan that's displayed at the cross. And that's the first reason God wanted to save these men. Second, Jonah is a picture of Christ. I've said this many times. And though many Jews will never bother to read the Gospels, they will in all likelihood read the book of Jonah. Because it is in the Tanakh which they don't call it Old Testament. That's how they call it, the Tanakh. Jesus himself draws the parallel between Jonah and himself when he says in Matthew chapter 12, 39, an evil and an adulterous generation craves a sign. The Jews were always looking for signs, constantly. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet for just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea monster for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. What is he saying? Just like Jonah was handed over into the sea and died, so I will die. And that's how you are saved. That's the sign. The story of Jonah was a divine orchestration. Nothing in the life of Jonah happen by chance. It's not just the story of a disobedient servant. It's not one of a recalcitrant prophet, one who didn't want to go to the Ninevites. It's not simply that. That's on the surface. Who is the main character of the book of Jonah? It is not Jonah. The main character of the book of Jonah is God. God at work. God serving and doing that which is amazing in spite of a disobedient servant, in spite of an apostate a country called Israel, in spite of his nation not doing his will. God is at work, saving. That's remarkable. God is at work. Because God providentially and sovereignly brings about a miraculous salvation despite what is going on in Israel and despite what is going on in the prophet Jonah. Proverbs 19 speaks about the plans that we have in our heart. And we've had many plans. We have plans sometimes as a church. We have plans as a father, as a mother, plans for our children, plans for the future. We plan. We, we are always planning. But Proverbs 19, verse 21 says this. Many are the plans. And so Jonah had a plan. His plan was, I'm going to go away from my ministry. I'm going to leave the land of Israel I'm going to find my ship and go on a long vacation. I will have nothing to do with Israel, nothing to do with uh, Nineveh. That's my plan. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God's purposes, God's 
divine decrees. What he purposes for his church, what he purposes for the salvation of souls, what he purposes for the regarding the entire plan of redemption, everything that he purposes will come to pass. Not my plans, not our plans. Now, that's not wrong to plan. We can plan. There are things we've planned as a family that have not panned out as we planned. And there are other things that have come, that have, uh, come about that we did not plan. We have to say, Lord, this is your doing, and we thank you for that. Because had everything panned out as we had planned it, it may not have been the best thing. I can imagine Jonah, after hearing about the conversion of these sailors and their repentance, I can imagine him saying, can it be? I cannot bring one Israelite to humble himself before God. One of the people in Israel, not one, becomes increasingly worse. And here, through my disobedience, these sailors become part of the people of God. How can that be? How can that be? Doesn't it point to the fact, as Jesus said, many will come from the east and west to sit at the table uh, with Abraham, but the own sons of Israel will not be there. How sad. Those to whom the oracles were given, the priesthood was given, the temple was given, they were blessed in so many ways, would be deprived of the joy of being with Abraham. But many would come from afar. Gentiles, those who had no knowledge of God, the pagans, the heathens, the worst and the vilest of sinners would come and sit at the table with Abraham. Saved by grace through faith. It's all God's doing. Many other plans in the heart of man, but it is the purpose of God that stands. And how thankful we are that we are part of that purpose, that we are his people saved by grace through faith.